Radio Bio is adhering to COVID-19 orders, and we are committed to producing fun and educational podcasts for your enjoyment. Please excuse the difference in the audio quality of our post-production. We appreciate you tuning in. Imagine you're a squid. Yeah, okay, it's weird, but just imagine it. You are a squid swimming at night. It's a dark night, except for the light from the moon, and there's a predator roaming around looking for its dinner. Now imagine you are a squid who can camouflage yourself to match the light from the moon and the stars so your shadow disappears. You trick the predator while you're going on your way to look for your own dinner. Seems kind of magical, right? Well, that's exactly what bobtail squids do, except they get help from their bacterial friends. Today on Radio Bio, we talk with Dr. Michelle Nishiguchi, a professor at the University of California, Merced, about glowing squids and their symbiotic sidekicks. This is Radio Bio. Don't know much biology. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. My name is Yumari Vasquez. And I'm Julia Alvarez. Today we have a special guest with us, Dr. Michelle Nishiguchi, a professor from the University of California, Merced. Welcome and thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Could you give our listeners a brief introduction of who you are and what you study? So I've always loved biology in the sense of looking at how organisms live together. So my love of biology is looking at symbioses or looking at how things you know, either live together in unison or maybe not so well. And my particular interest are looking at beneficial associations. So how multiple organisms live together harmoniously. And I study this using a squid glow-in-the-dark bacterium model to see how these very two very different partners get along and how they create this very beneficial relationship for each other. Very cool. Okay, so we've talked about symbiosis a lot on Radio Bio. And although symbiosis can range from beneficial, as in species such as clownfish and sea anemones, to the parasitic symbiosis between ticks and mammals, we describe symbiosis in this podcast as two partners benefiting from the partnership. Glowing squid is an odd topic, so we asked Dr. Nishiguchi how she got started in this research. So how did you get started in squid symbiosis biology? Well, I like calamari, <laughs> no, <laughs> but I do like calamari actually, but I think one thing, and it's not like, I, I do like squid, but I think one thing you have to look at when you're a biologist is what's going to be a really good model to study the questions that you have. And the questions I wanted to ask was how these two organisms evolve together, what are their relationships, what are their distributions across the world? And then eventually, how do they compare all these different populations all over the world? How do they compare to one another? And are the same? Are they different? Do they co-opt the same types of mechanisms? So in a broad sense, looking at the co-evolution of these two organisms and how they get along. You mentioned that you have a squid and bacteria symbiosis that glow in the dark. Do they both glow? Is it just the squid or the bacteria? And... Can you explain what the purpose of that is? Is it yeah. do they naturally glow or is this something lab created? So not all squids glow, I should mention, and this is a unique case. And they don't do it autogenically. So the squids um, actually use the bacteria to make light. 
And so the squids by themselves, if they don't have the bacteria, they can't make bioluminescence. So what's really cool about this is that when the squids are born, when the baby squids are born, they don't have these bacteria with them initially. And uh, in the first few hours after they hatch, and they're little baby squids, they don't have a larval stage like a lot of other mollusks, um, they get the, the glow-in-the-dark bacteria from the surrounding seawater. But one thing you have to keep in mind is that in ocean seawater, and you can remember this every time you go swimming in the ocean, you actually take a gulp of water, uh, there are about a million bacteria in one milliliter of seawater, okay? <laughs> so that's a lot of bacteria. Hold up, let's pause here. There are how many bacteria in seawater? So there's about one million bacteria in one millimeter of seawater. And for those of us used to the U.S. metrics, that's about a quarter of a teaspoon. Wow, I will never look at seawater the same way again. And so what these squids have to do is they have to locate or signal these ripe bacteria to get into their light organs, which is where they're harbored. And it's like the analogy I like to make is, let's say you're at a football game and the stadium is packed, you know, it's like the Super Bowl or whatever. And the beer guy is way at the other end at the other football stadium and you're trying to flag them down. How do you get their attention to come over and give you what you want, right? And so the squid almost has to send out these signals that are very specific for their bacteria to colonize the light organs. And so that's kind of what I'm interested in is looking at, you have all these bacteria in the environment, how does the squid know what bacteria are the right bacteria? And then once they get in, how do they persist over time? Okay. And the coolest thing is that these squids, what I mean, the bacteria, when they get into the squid, uh, they're able to utilize some of the nutrients that are inside the light organ. So like lots of very nutrient rich habitat. And so they multiply four times faster inside the squid light organ than say if they were just floating around in seawater. So that's a benefit for the bacteria. They're also not prisoners because every morning at dawn, the squids, they don't need the bacteria more. They vent out 95% of the bacteria through the pores that they came in and the remaining 5% recolonize. So these bacteria, when they get vented out, they're still alive and they're, they can you know, swim around seawater. They can colonize another juvenile squid. So it, it almost is beneficial to their fitness. They can increase their numbers much more rapidly than say if they were just swimming in the environment. Hmm. So these bacteria benefit from this relationship because they are able to get nutrients from the squid and multiply faster. Yep, and they are not, quote, prisoners, unquote. So they get released back into the water once the squid is done with them. But how does the squid benefit from this relationship? Well, Dr. Nishiguchi is going to explain that next. The squid, on the other hand, so what they do is they take up these bacteria and they usually take them up uh, initially when they're just born at night. So these are nocturnal animals. And what they use the bacteria for is they produce light, but it's a very specific light. So this light organ has this kind of anatomy where the bottom side of the squid, so the, the ventral side, the belly side of the squid, has a lens on the light organ. And the top side, the dorsal side, has a reflector. And the bacteria are in the middle of that. It's like a sandwich. And then around that is the ink sac. So, you know, like all squids and octopuses, they have an ink sac to release ink to escape predators. So these bacteria grow inside this light organ and their numbers get larger and larger and they produce a certain high density, which then enables them to create light. They just can't create light as a single cell. They need a lot of them to produce enough light. These bacteria control their bioluminescence using quorum sensing, which means that they are able to communicate to each other to make sure they are all acting together. 
sort of how bees are able to communicate using the waggle dance to find a location for a new nest. Now, back to squids. And the squid does is when it comes out at night, okay, if you think about a squid swimming in shallow water, downwelly moonlight will cast a shadow on them. So this is clear tropical waters, all right? And so any predator from below can see the shadow and they're like, everyone likes to eat calamari, so they're gonna eat the squid. But what the squid does is it matches that downwelly moonlight with the bioluminescence from the bacteria and basically their shadow disappears. So we always call it the squid cloaking device if you're a Star Trekkie. <laughs> and, uh, and they disappear, they, they just completely mask their shadow. And they can control, let's say it's a full moon and they need a lot of light. The ink sac that's wrapped around this light organ, they can open it up, they can stretch the muscles so that the whole light organ is exposed and there's a lot of light. If it's a new moon where there's hardly any moonlight, they can shut it down, they can close that ink sac around. So you can think of the ink sac as like a diaphragm on a camera. It can open and close depending on how much light they need, if it's a full moon or a new moon. Oh, so that's how squids benefit from the symbiotic relationship. That's awesome how they are able to use their bacteria to hide their shadows from predators. Plus, they can even change their brightness. Yes, it seems more science fiction rather than fiction, but it just shows how cool nature is and the smart ways animals are able to escape from predators. And so that's kind of amazing that they can do this, just modulate the yeah. light physically, you know. I feel like my mind's being blown right now. So I'm imagining <laughs> that they're glowing like green or something glow in the dark, but is the the color of the light similar to moonlight in the water? It, it, it is. The wavelengths are very similar. And um, actually, this, the bacteria that we work on, it's there's like three main species. They're all in the, the group Vibrionaceae, so the Vibrios. Um, and some of them emit a blue light, some of them emit a green light, depending on where they're caught. And we haven't really fully characterized why that is, which is, you know, leads to your question, is it because they're deeper in the water? Or are they more shallow? That we don't know. That's a big, that's a really great question that we'd like to answer sometimes. So. That's so interesting. So one thing is that, you know, this anti-predatory behavior, right? This counter-illumination. And I'll just, this is a side because I do a lot of field work. We go out and collect these animals, either dip netting in Hawaii or with a big seine net uh, in, in Australia. Uh, but they're, they still have a lot of predators. So in Hawaii, because everyone likes to eat squid, right? Every, I should say everything in the ocean. Um, and so there are these big lizard fish that live on the reef flats of Hawaii. They have, they're sit and wait predators. They sit there, they have big mouths. And they wait till something goes by and then they just ambush, right? So we're out swimming one night. So the Hawaiian reef flats, nighttime, Rory's out at night. And we see one of these lizards fish with a squid hanging out of its mouth. And we're like, oh my God, maybe it didn't have any bacteria. Because all the squids we capture have um, bacteria in them. So we grab the fish and we're like, boom, boom, boom. You know, making it spit out the squid. We get the poor dead squid, take it back to the lab. Of course, it still had bacteria in it. It just was a poor squid that got caught by the lizard. So that even though you have this anti-predatory device, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not always going to get eaten. <laughs> so that one, unfortunately, got, well, almost got eaten. So, What happens if the squid don't get the bacteria? So they, you said right after they hatch is when they typically like become colonized. Does that mm -hmm. ever not happen? And what happens to the squid? So only in the lab. You can do that in the lab. You know, when I mentioned earlier that not just because I love squid and octopuses, although they are pretty cool animals. But you have to pick your model system very well to ask the questions that you have. And one really cool thing about this system is that we can bring the squids into the lab. 
we can produce eggs and then the eggs they hatch into juvenile babies and the babies are born without these symbionts okay so they're naive you can present any type of uh, vibrio bacteria that is a colonizer of these light organs so i can take a hawaiian squid and colonize it with mediterranean vibrios right and you can ask all these different questions about environmental transfer uh, in the lab, because we do a lot of molecular genetics, you can knock out a gene that you know is responsible for the symbiosis to occur. And then you can infect the juveniles and say, okay, if we take out, say, the light producing genes. So in other words, these vibrios now can't produce bioluminescence. Can the squid tell that this is a defective bacterium? And it can, because it's like, <laughs> you don't produce any light, forget you. you know? And so, um, <laughs> so anyways, in the bacteria will get in the light organ, but they won't persist. So unlike a wild type bacterium that gets in and stays in until the morning and gets vented out and then they grow up again, the dark mutants, um, they don't persist. They don't get up to the same numbers and then they slowly get vented out and they, they don't want them in there. Cause it's like, why am I going to sustain this, this bacterium that's not doing its job, right? So the squid can detect, actually can detect light produced in its light organ. With that, you know, with some, actually they have some photophores that they can do that with, which is very cool. Wow. But um, yeah, you know, there's like, so that this is the thing about uh, get, picking the right model is something that you want to be able to manipulate in the lab to ask those questions. So there are a lot of really cool symbioses out there, but some of them, like I have a lot of friends who work on the deep sea hydrothermal vent symbioses, but you can imagine logistically, that's a hard, that's a hard, those animals are hard because they have to be under pressure. You have to go on a cruise and get them, you know? And so, yeah, there's a lot of effort going into that. So I'd volunteer to go on that cruise and do the hard work. <laughs> I know, I know what had said when I came and gave my summer, he's like, you're going to want all the students coming to your lab because you go to really cool places yeah. to do your field work. So yeah, our closest field site is Hawaii. There are no, no sepiolids that live along the California coastline. They're mostly uh, trop, subtropical, tropical. So Hawaii is our closest. And then the Indo-West Pacific and the Mediterranean, those are the, those are the areas we concentrate on our field work. So. so do you see this uh, glowing bacteria in any other species? Or is it mostly squids? No, you can see them in, um, there are these uh, fishes, they call them pine cone fishes because they look like a pine cone. You can Google pine cone fish. If you're not driving while listening to this podcast, Google pine cone fish immediately. If you are driving while listening to this podcast, please wait until you're safely at your destination, then Google pine cone fish immediately. They have, uh, they use their, uh, the bacteria for different things. So our squids use them for this behavior, this counter elimination. The pine cone fish, the light organ is right under the eye. And they use it for signaling other pinecone fishes. And the bacteria glow by themselves. So you can you can culture them in the lab. You know, for a lot of outreach projects, we usually draw pictures. I had one student who was very artistic, so he would draw really cool pictures on the petri dishes. And then um, and then the next day they, they're up to their quorum and they're bioluminescing. And then you can take them to your classroom and show the students. I had students so going, hey, can we put that on our faces and everything? And we're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> they're only a VSL1. They're only, a, you know, they're not pathogenic. They're benign, but still they're a bacterium. You cannot use them as face makeup, but yeah. They are, um, the Vibrios that we work on are related though to some pathogens like Vibrio cholera, uh, Vibrio parahemolyticus, and Vibrio uh, vulnificus, which are all Vibrios that cause gastrointestinal disease. So there are a lot of similarities and we can make a lot of analogies to, you know, when you're a beneficial microbe, you know, like when you get along with your host 
And then where is the fine line to where you cross and you're no longer in that beneficial mode, but when you're a pathogen, right? And a lot of the genes used for infection in beneficial symbioses are very similar to the ones that the pathogens use. They just take it a step further and they cause disease. So you can also kind of use those analogies to, to, to get money from the NIH. <laughs> and so, yeah. So I want to know what's the most surprising thing you've learned with your research? Like the weirdest thing or the thing that maybe shocked you the most? I think the weirdest thing is how well the bacteria, how the bacteria communicate to a squid. Okay. So here you have a bacterium, single celled organism, right? And it can send signals to the squid to do changes. So I think, um, Julia, you mentioned, you know, what does it do when it gets in there? Like the difference between an infected and an uninfected squid. Dr. Nichiguchi explained to us how the Vibrio bacteria changes the morphology of the host. When Vibrio infect the squid's light organ, there is a series of chemical reactions that occur that cause the squid to select only for the bacteria they want. Think of these bacteria as security guards, only letting their friends into a party. If the Vibrio don't want anyone else to come into the light organ, they cause cell death of the squid cilia. But without these glowing bacteria, the squid cilia keeps the party going where everyone is welcomed. And it's cool because like, my God, you know, it's just this other organism from a completely different kingdom that is, is inducing this change in the host. And I mean, this is shown in a lot of things like with rhizobia and plants, you know, there's a lot of things that occur between the two, but I've just been so amazed at how this happens in our system. You know, this whole like this cross, you know, cross domain communication between a eukaryotic and a, a eukaryote and a bacterium. So, and I'm sure our bacteria in our bodies are doing the same thing. They're releasing all these different chemicals in our guts, you know, on our skin, all these little different microbiomes all over our bodies. And they're telling our bodies what and what to do, right? Produce more sweat. Don't produce a lot of sweat, you know, like, uh, oh no, here, this person just ate gobs and gobs of ice cream. We're getting a lot of fat in our, you know, things like that, right? It's like, it's so cool that so many things that we don't understand because um, those bacterial communities or those microbiomes are so complex. So how do you set up an experiment to test something like that? Um, okay, so one thing is, so I said, they're really good to have in the lab. So what we do is we go out and fish a bunch of adults and um, whether, and then we fly them from wherever. So like in Hawaii, my grad students will go out, they'll dip net for six or seven nights in a row and bring back about 30 or 40 adults. Uh, that's our breeding population. So the adults are the ones that we kind of keep here as our breeding colony. And we can keep them in the lab, either in zebrafish tanks, or we had these really big aquaria back in New Mexico State. Uh, <laughs> they're happy, right? And there's enough, enough live shrimp, which is one of the most expensive things about my research program is you got to, squids are very picky. They won't take dead food. They have to have live food. So you got to have another culture of shrimp going on this side and you feed them live shrimp or little fish. I know, what a pain. So, um, so we made the, made the females and the males. And the great thing about this group of cephalopods, it's not with all cephalopods, is there's sequential layers. So they, a female will lay five to six clutches in her lifetime, okay, clutches of eggs. Whereas you hear about octopuses where they'll wait and the females will lay all their clutch, their one clutch in one big swoop and then she dies, which is more typical of what squids and octopuses do. But these guys, they can lay many clutches. So the most I think we've gotten out of females, maybe five or six. 
And so one clutch, in, at least in olds, sometimes they can be as big as 500 eggs. And that's a lot of experiments, right? So what, since I told you that babies are born without their bacteria, we can set up these experiments to test mutants. Um, we can do temperature experiments at different temperatures or pHs if you're going to look at ocean acidification to see how that affects development. Um, one of the neatest things that we did, a graduate student of mine, Will Soto, who's now at the College of William and Mary, he did, so we do a lot of experimental evolution where we evolve things in the lab. And with bacteria, it's a really nice model because their generation times are so fast, right? So, you know, so that happens up to at about 400, 500 generations. So. That's super cool. Yeah. So that's why I say choose your study animal well or study organism, because if you did that on redwood trees, your PhD would take forever, <laughs> right? So that's why bacteria are really cool to work. I mean, bacteria are really cool organisms anyways, but you can do a lot of manipulation with them uh, because of just being, you know, an, a haploid, i.e. one set of genes, chromosome in the, uh, in the cell, and you can make knockouts very easily, mutant knockouts or whatever. Just very, very easy to work in the lab with. So that's why I like to do that, so. You, it sounds like you have the best of both worlds in your research. You have this easy to work Me with too, bacteria actually. and you get to go to Hawaii all the time. Yeah. We're not, we're not sipping Mai Tais in Hawaii. I know when I tell, <laughs> tell the staff, I'm, hey, I'm going to Hawaii for field work and they're like, oh, you know, I'm like, hey man, we're up five hours on the reef flats, like dip nets looking for these squids. I got to tell you, they're small. They're only about four centimeters in oh. size. So you're out there, yeah, they're tiny and they kind of blend into the sand. So you stay out there, every, then about three hours into it, everything starts looking like a squid, even little rocks. And so, you, but you're out there for about, on the walking on the reef flats for about four or five hours every night. It's, so it's not super easy to do, yeah. um, but you kind of have this zen. You go out there and you just kind of, actually I shouldn't say zen, it's like hunt mode. You're like on the hunt trying to get your And then the other thing is flying them back. So we flew them back to New Mexico. We haven't done that yet here, but uh, we flew them all the way back from, even from us, from Sydney, which is where I collect. And that's a 36 hour trip for them, but they all make it just fine. And then they get into their nice little artificial seawater tanks in, in Las Cruces, New Mexico. <laughs> and soon it'll be here in Merced. Um, but that's the other thing is they do really well in travel. So they're not, you know, some animals take, don't travel very well. And these guys, everyone says, well, how do you ship them? And you just put them in an aquarium, like when you go to the fish store, and the guy bags your fish for you, puts a little oxygen. So that's what we do. We put them in that double bags, a little bit of water, some oxygen, seal them up in a big cooler, like, you know, you'd use for a party. And then they get on the airplane with us and then they ship them all the way down. Um, and there are funny stories with that too, because I have to go through customs. And of course, because I have live animals, I have to go through the red line, right? And so the custom guy, you know, I have all my paperwork, right? Fish and game. I have all my permits there already. And, and the guy is looking at me and he goes, you know, oh, lady, what do you have in the coolers? And I said, um, live squid. And he jumps back and I go, you've been watching too many B movies. These are only little, they're not giant squid that are going to come out of the cooler. <laughs> These little babies, they look, they look small, you know, they're adults. But so I open up the cooler and he's like, oh yeah, okay. They're so cute. You know? So yeah, there's some really cool things. I mean, like with, with, when you look at um, squids in the wild, I mean, the coolest thing I think about, being kind of a molecular biologist and a field biologist, you, you get to know your animals in the field as well. And so you get to see behaviors that, you know, if you were just a, on a bench all the time, you wouldn't be able to see those. So you really, I mean, I've been working on these guys for like 24 years now. 
And, but every time I go on the field and I see one, it's just like, oh, you know, it's like, it's really cool. Or if I'm diving and it doesn't even have to be the species that I work on, but I'll see like um, Lola go squid. So these are like market squid that you eat and they go swimming by and I'm always like, ah. so it's just, it's so silly. Right. But it's like, you get excited because that's what makes you love biology. is just the wonder, right. The curiosity and then just seeing nature in front of you. Um, I think it's really great. Thank you so much for coming. This is a great interview. We had a lot of fun. Thank you. This is Radio Bio signing off. The night is as dark as ink, except for the light from the moon or from the bobtail squid. Being able to turn invisible is extremely useful, especially when you are trying to hide from predators or hiding from being eaten as calamari. Nature has creative ways of being a predator and many more ways for potential prey to hide. These bobtail squid and their bacterial associates are one example of the fascinating ways organisms come together to support each other. In a world full of parasites, be a beneficial bacteria. This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Sherry Larson. The artwork was created by Julia Alvarez. Editing was done by Yumari Vasquez. The interviewers were Julia Alvarez and Yumari Vasquez. Post-production inserts were created and recorded by Ryan Torres and Yumari Vasquez. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, the Graduate Division, and the University Friends Circle at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcast at www.radiobio.net.